Hey, Jeff Johnston here, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. I am uh, mildly battling a sore throat, but uh, if you live undeterred, you're going to have to fight through some uh, some health concerns once in a while. So here I am, nonetheless, super excited to talk to Dr. Evelyn Higgins today with Wired for Addiction. Uh, never met her before, but I've talked to a few of the people that work for Wired for Addiction and was just immediately impressed with their uh, objectives, their passion, their mission, uh, what they aspire to do. And so I thought, what's what's the best way to learn about somebody? Invite them on my podcast. So, <laughs> so thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you. Jeff, thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, um, not knowing a lot about Wired for Addiction, I think one of the goals today is to get a little acclimated about, um, you know, your passion behind it. What's it about? Um, but the, the the part that really interested me the most was this um, uh, biological component to mental health and addiction. You know, I when I got thrust into this, you know, I jokingly say I'm just a dad from Iowa. You know, I don't have any clinical background. I was a capitalist, you know, money hungry, greedy selfish person, maybe not that bad, but you know, I was chasing things I thought were important to me. And then boom, you know, um, Seth dies and then boom, prudence dies. And all of a sudden what I thought was important, uh, shifted to what really is important. And that's communication. That's collaboration, connectivity. Um, as Johan Harry says, so eloquently the opposite of addictions connection. Um, and, and so it's like, for me now I'm on, I'm on the advocacy side is for me to learn the most about these things. When I wrote my book, I spent a lot of time um, talking about disease and choice. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of lend, I kind of landed on the side of choice, you know, where, you know, I just quit. I quit cold Turkey, 33 years of drinking. Why can't everyone else? And as I get into it, peel back the layers, man, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just somebody looking in the mirror saying, Hey, I'm done. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Any of the addictions are such complex disease. There's so many layers to it and so many complexities within. And as we know, addiction is a triangle, right? It's a right. bio psycho social disease. So there's so many parts of it that can go right or conversely go wrong. Mm. You know, What's... and everybody, everybody that finds themselves, say, drinking uh, with a dependency versus addiction, two different things. And why can one person walk away like you? I'm done. That's it. Game over. I'm out. And your wife, for example, could. And knowing it wasn't going to have the ending, the happy ending, but couldn't do it. So there's, there's, we're learning that there's an actual genetic component to this as well, like any other disease. Yeah. And that's, that's probably where I made my biggest shift was, you know, I didn't think in my heart it was a moral failing, but I was more convinced it was um, really up to us to quit. And as I met more people like you and, you know, tried to surround myself around people that don't just, you know, validate my beliefs, you know, that's a dangerous proposition If all you do is talk to people that agree with you. Um, I started challenging myself. Okay. Maybe there's more to this. Just, Hey, um, I'm going to quit drinking thing. Maybe there's right. some things people are born with some biological components. And um, so let me ask you a question. I, I one time at a, on a tour last summer, I think it was in um, San Diego. I was on a panel and I made a statement and I got corrected by a clinician. Um, I made a statement that not all addictions are bad. You can be addicted to telling the truth. You can be addicted to working out. You can be addicted to eating healthy. Um, you can be addicted to, you know, not watching toxic things on TV. 
And I was corrected. And the guy said, no, it can't happen because by definition, the word addiction involves doing something despite as adverse consequences. So by definition, you can't have a positive adverse consequence. And I thought, well, maybe we just need to, maybe we need to redefine what the word addiction means. Um, so how do you define addiction? And is it possible to have good addictions? You know, I, I think in general, you could say yes, but I see what the clinician's point was. Anything done to an extreme that it can then have negative negative consequences, even exercise, you know, can ultimately have negative consequences if you never take that rest day and allow your body to rest and your muscles and your joints and your, your ligaments, your tendons to recuperate. So anything can get to such an extreme where it does have a negative consequence. Yeah, I, I see his point or her point. And where this all started with me is when I was speaking to young kids, I'd come into like a sixth, seventh, eighth grade room and I would, um, I would ask them, I'd say, uh, what, what's the word addiction mean to you? And we'd get the whiteboard out and I'd write down things. And then, you know, ultimately some of the teachers were commenting and we had alcohol and drugs and, you know, food and uh, social media. And then I said, can you be addicted to telling the truth? And what I was trying to do is get them to think about the way we define words right. and, and, and just not buy the narrative that someone tells you certain things mean certain things. You know, mm -hmm. you, you're always free to pretty much tell yourself a new story about anything if you want. So sure. I was just trying to challenge the narrative. And so, um, so why for addiction? Let's talk about that. I'm excited to hear about the genesis behind this. What were you doing before this? Uh, how old is the organization? What do you guys do like an average day? Sure. So um, it's, it was in R and D for 16 years. And the way it started was I was practicing in pain management and disability from 35 years ago, seeing the try this, try that approach with meds and, and trying to get people better. And then that didn't work. So half this, double that, let's try this one. And this just kind of random pattern. And I was in a rural area and then 20 years after that, I'm in an urban area, yet seeing the same exact thing. Right. Try this, try that, double it, half it, we'll go to a different one. Everything was random. There was no protocol. There was mm. no systematic bringing science into this. And at first, I was seeing people become dependent. But as time went on, I was seeing people become addicted. That was my professional part of my why. The personal part of my why was that I married an alcoholic. A man actually who had several addictions, not just alcoholism. And um, we had a child together. Mm -hmm. A year after my daughter is born, we find out that my husband was adopted. Mm -hmm. So now I'm seeing clearly this behavior. Yeah. And now I'm like, okay, I need to know what this family history is. Gotcha. And I have no answers. So now as a parent, I'm like, what do I have to look out for for my daughter? What right. do I need to do to make sure she doesn't go down this road? Mm -hmm. So. That was kind of how all this came about. 35 years ago became, in addition to my regular practice or certified addiction professional, to add that into the toolbox of how I was serving people. And then as time went on and on, and I'm not seeing us do anything different. And actually, you know, 2023, we could be looking at the addiction space as if it's 1950, 1970, yeah. 1990, 2000, yeah. because nothing's changed. Yeah. There was a total inequity. In right. this area of healthcare, and it was because there was still a moral failing right. involved, there was still a stigma involved, kind of this opinion of, "Hey, you got yourself there, get yourself you can get out yourself there." Yep. Right. So you're on your own, 
and it made no sense. And we weren't using technology to advance this area of healthcare as well. And shame on us for doing that. You know, everybody loses in the end, not just the individual, right. but everybody involved in society as a whole. So that's how, if those things had worked, I would have never yeah. kept on my journey for where I wound up. It's so, it's so ironic you say it that way because when we were on our tour last summer going around the United States, um, we went for 95 days in an RV and we met with 38 nonprofits in 35 states, just my sons and I. Um, it was the most humbling thing ever, but I got asked by a lot of like TV and radio stations. It's like, you know, I know why you're here, Jeff. You know, your son died, uh, your wife too, but um, what's your end game? What, what question are you trying to answer? Mm-hmm. And I used to fall for that because it's a trap question. The media creates mm-hmm. questions like that. So you can fall for the bait. And I used mm-hmm. to give some political rambling, you know, about, oh, I want to eradicate addiction. Or I want to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I finally just said the same thing you just said a couple seconds ago. I said, you know what? If what we were doing was working, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And absolutely take it for what that's worth. But that's the facts. That is the facts. And that's my frustration with the whole system. And I wrote a blog a while back. Again, kind of exactly what you talked about. I called it the mental health whack-a-mole dilemma. And the present the, the case I presented was um, when I came in the mental health space about six years ago, it was very similar to the space, the investment world I was in when I was 23, mm-hmm. when I came into the investment world. It was the wild, wild west. You know, it was just come in with your money, give it to me. I'll put it into the same mutual fund I do everybody else. You know, there wasn't any exclusivity. There was no customization. It was just, it was just boilerplated. Right. And then this thing called financial planning came out and we started planning for people and putting together plans and looking at their taxes and their risk levels and all that. So I get into mental health space and I'm like, there's a similar frontier out there. Um, it's, it's like whack-a-mole. It's like, I look, I go back to Seth and look at his situation here. I was Seth was, um, you know, probably 15 years old attention deficit, which I have as well. My mm-hmm. dad's a retired doctor, so I'm not throwing doctors under the bus, but my dad never gave me anything for my attention deficit. You know, my dad right. told me, he told me it was a superpower. And he said, like any superpower, superhero, you're going to get trouble once in a while with your superpowers. Love and so it. I grew up never thinking it was a disorder ever. And I, I cringe when I hear people say, um, you, you know, especially when children talk about attention deficit and then they say disorder. And I'm like, man, who put that word in your mouth? Right. Look, it's attention deficit. Let's just stop right there. You know, it's one of the. And maybe you and I say disorder and all the smart people, the people with all the initials behind their names, they call whatever they want. Why, why do the kids have to know it? It's a disorder, even if it is, because there's no, uh, there's no benefit for that. Um, There's tremendous benefit in keeping the kids kind of, you know, um, know, letting them know what they should know at that age, you know, attention deficit, big deal. You know, I mean, it's it's what makes us human. I mean, I'm sure you have attention deficit. Um, You know, it's a spectrum. You know, exactly. and here, here's just a dad from Iowa. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, but that's kind of my observation. When I looked at my son, Seth, he's not disordered. <laughs> I mean, why, 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 why is he taking Adderall? And I didn't do that. I allowed it to happen. And um, the rest was history. That's really where his beginning of his demise started. He Adderall is probably great for the right person, um, but it wasn't for Seth. And it wasn't certainly the right option for him right out of the bat. Right. Why couldn't we have exhausted meditation and taking sugar out of his diet and, you know, changing his friend group a little bit or something. I don't know. I just, I got really frustrated. Exactly. And, and I can see why it's just so accepted across Mm. the board, you know, and you think back to how that ties into addiction. 
most people that wind up with an addiction to whatever start out with a diagnosed condition that's not <laughs> correctly right or an undiagnosed condition or a trauma or several of them and it's self-medicating yeah. it's you know that age that you start like somebody who's like i just can't slow it down okay you know first thing i did that really made me feel good was alcohol and that becomes the go-to right right so we have to look at that why why is that there to begin with? That's measurable. And the labs that we do, that part would be measurable and say, hey, here's what we need to do in those biochemical pathways to get everything working optimally. You know, you you obviously know all the people in this area. So you got, you know, Johan Hari, obviously, he's a well-known individual. His TED Talk is probably one of the most viewed TED Talks ever. And he said that famous quote that now is kind of overused, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. But then you got Dr. Gabor Mate, who claims that the addiction issue stems from childhood trauma. Well, right. you know what? I had addiction issues, but I never had any childhood trauma. Um, I grew up in the Leave at the Beaver house. You know, my dad's a doctor. My mom stayed home, raised four boys. It's like she was number one in her class, magnum cum laude in college. And then she decided to raise boys. And I respected her for that. That's what she, that was her choice. Right. And I didn't, I didn't grow up in an, in, in an abusive family. Um, I grew up in your very typical white middle, middle class, middle country Mm -hmm. uh, but I was a heavy drinker by 17, 18 years old. And I was a gambler all, all my twenties, all my thirties for me. Um, do you go by Dr. Higgins or Evelyn? Which one do you prefer? Whichever you prefer. Okay. Um, we'll stay professional. I'll say Dr. Higgins. Um, for me, it was, it was just, I was bored. I yeah. was, yeah, I yeah. was freaking yeah. bored. I, I'm still bored. I, and I don't drink. I don't, I don't do any of that stuff anymore, but, but when I do things, I do them compulsively because I'm bored. Yeah. I get, I don't get satisfied very often. I'm always frustrated with never feeling like I'm doing enough. And so, yeah, but yeah. I see that permeating into my living on a tour projects where I don't really feel sometimes like I'm doing enough. I know I am. So let me, let me, I'm going with this as kind of a statement slash question, but so what do you do with someone who's bored that wasn't abused, didn't have trauma, but they still have addiction problems? Sure. So in the panel that we do at Wired for Addiction, we look at 85 different biomarkers and we would identify where that's coming from when we do your lab panel. We would really see, OK, your the um, personal professional drive just doesn't stay. You know, there's not right. a staying power in there. It's, you got to change it up. And and, you know, everybody comes in the game with something. You know, and then it's what does your on top of that, your your brain chemicals, your hormones, then how do these genetic components play into and have these act out for you individually? So it's it's looking at everything and putting all of that information together. But for a lot of people like boredom, loneliness, that's especially older people. Yeah. Loneliness. You talk to them and they like, you know, I start at three o'clock and I don't stop until I go to bed because I'm so lonely. I think it was Ernest Hemingway that said, I drink to make you more um, exciting. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> I have to drink to, to mix it up. But that there's so many people that may not start out that way. You know, even when we see someone's behavior who changes much later in their life. And it's like, why did that happen? Because those genetic components were always there, but they didn't have the same stressors in their life to yeah. turn those genes on, turn those genes off. That's the whole epigenetics. Yeah. So they're, they're laying dormant basically, right? They're Correct. looking, they're looking, they're, always there. they're looking yep. for that moment where, Hey, you know, I'm going to be activated now, you know? Exactly. 
Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yep. and, so and as you said, the communication and the connection, what everybody, what everybody needs, you know, pr- communication, probably the most essential element that we have as humans. If, if we said to somebody, Hey, yeah. we're going to have a, going to do a seminar today and it's going to be about communication, how many people would show up. But if you package it as something different, Oh, I need to know that. And when you get there, what are you really learning how to communicate with other yeah. people? I have, uh, in my talks, I talk a lot about vulnerability. Um, mm-hmm. and I talk about it, um, not in the way Brene Brown does, but maybe in a similar context in that being vulnerable and, and not trying to turn into a narcissist here, because a lot of vulnerability can simply be your own narcissism of having to tell your story over and over constantly to people. Mm-hmm. To me, I've always looked at vulnerability as a way for me to give permission to you that mm-hmm. it's okay. You know, when mm-hmm. I, I'm a 50, you know, tomorrow I'll be 57. I'm ah, 57. Birthday. Yeah. Thank you. 57 year old male that cries regularly. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I mean, regularly, like seven times a day, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, is that I forgot what I was going with that. Cause I talked about my birthday, but then again, that's attention deficit. You're seeing, you're seeing a very good experiment. Vulner- here. Vulnerability. Oh yeah. Vulnerability. So it's like, so when I tell somebody the story, the intent isn't to tell about me. The intent is to give them permission. It's okay for them to tell about their story. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I noticed on my tour last summer, which really began maybe as a, as a journey of, you know, me sharing what happened so people wouldn't repeat it. It came more into just curiosity about, Hey, I see somebody, um, they're a story. I mean, I look at you right now and I don't really see what you probably think I see. I see a story. I see somebody who laughs and fears and cries and hopes and dreams and has been disappointed and has been, you know, very excited. And that's what I see in people now. And and that whole experience of going around the summer last summer, um, really kind of heightened my senses to being more receptive to not seeing a, a, an overweight elderly man or a black, you know, um, female or even a gay person. Just, I don't see that. I just don't. And it sounds so political, to say, I don't see color because, you know, everyone says that that's kind of the cool thing to say, but I re- I really don't, I just don't, I, I see humans, I see pain, I see suffering, I see addiction, alcoholism, uh, overdose, suicide. I see all these things in everybody that I see. And, um, I don't know, maybe that's just, um, a good, a good lens to have, I guess. I don't know. I would totally agree. The human condition it is that. You know, it's like the more you travel, if you travel internationally and people right. say, well, what were the people like? I'm like, they're the same as yeah. us. Yep. They have all the same things. You're seeing different scenery. People are people. Yeah. You know? I was talking to my youngest son about, I think it was um, the war in Ukraine or it was somewhere where there was a lot of, you know, bombing and stuff going on. And uh, I think I was talking to someone else. They were talking about politics or something. I said, but do you know the average person sitting there in their house hearing bombs going over and planes flying over they're just like us you know they're, they're not sitting there talking politics exactly you know they're talking about you know when when are they going to be back to go to school when are they going to get a good meal they're, it's it's the governments that that can corrupt not the individual not the people you know most most people around the country like you said are very similar and that was one thing that i got asked a lot by the media too is like you just said what what did you learn on your adventure around the summer and i said I could be in any community center throughout the United States. And if I didn't tell you where I was and I just brought you in for an hour, you would know, you would know where I'm at. Exactly. You know, other than maybe there was some, we were an Indian reservation. Obviously, you know, I was in an Indian reservation. Um, 
we were at the Syrian Syrian Refugee Muslim Center up in um, Portland, Oregon. We did a presentation up there, to talk about mental health with the Syrian refugees that come over um, to America. You know, it's it's just tragic. Not only do they have to fight against their religious belief, but the fact they don't look the same, and um, mm-hmm. it's probably not. You know, there's certain times in our country it's not great to to look that way. Um, right. And so, um, I just learned very quickly that everybody's real. I mean, we're all pretty similar. You know, really. So, um, so let's talk about addiction again in, in terms of, um, two things, uh, prevention and treatment. So, you know, cause those, those are really the two sides of the fence. Um, you know, once somebody has gone down this road, then you're basically always in treatment. You're also always in prevention. You're always preventing the next high, the next drunk, the next, so in a way you're simultaneously in both, but going back to a 14 year olds, never done drugs at all, never done vaping or anything you know, how pivotal, how pivotal is it that we reach them at those ages and, and get them to, you know, autonomously learn to make better choices? Oh, real important. And then how do we do that? Yeah. So, I mean, a kid isn't even going to know they get to a certain age in life. We, we've both passed those ages where your buddies are going to say after school, Hey, Jeff, great idea. This is what we're going to do, you know? And okay, I'm in, you do it with your buddies and if you've got a predisposition here, the next day you're like, hey, let's go do that again. And your buddies are like, no, we're cool. We're going to do something different. We're done with that. And you're like, no, 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 I want to do that again. Right. You know, and in my TED talk, I say, you know, what if in your youth you knew these things? You were armed with the facts of your physiology. Would you make different decisions knowing you had a genetic predisposition? You know, not something mom and dad told you, but it's identified in your DNA by a doctor. That to me is the sweet spot, because if you go into the game of life and you know, like, hey, this is this is what we have going on in our family. Some families, it's cancer. Some families, it's heart disease. You know, for our family, it's this. It's addiction. It's mental health. We still all have free will. But knowing that information, we have the ability to make different choices. You don't have wiggle room in this area. Don't put yourself in that situation. Right. So that would be the prevention side, the, the beautiful place. The optimist in me says that's possible. We can okay. get to that. I was going to ask you something on that too. Um, yeah. I like the fact you said the optimist in me because I am optimistic as well, yet there are plenty of, um, there's plenty of evidence out there that shows that knowing more on the topic doesn't equate to better decisions. And right. that's the best example. The best mm-hmm. example is yeah. obesity rates in the United States. If you go back 20 years and we didn't have labels on anything, you know, if we did, it was very, very four or five things. Now you can't have a bottle of water without a label on a bottle of water, but, but we know more about everything about losing weight, keeping fit, exercise and all that. Yet we're the heaviest industrial country we've ever been. So I've always just kind of jokingly said, do we need another label on a Snickers bar to remind people how bad they are? So (laughs) there's a disconnect between, having knowledge of something and then actually being able to not do it. Right. Utilizing Um, that knowledge. So I guess where does that, how do we make that happen where people can take this knowledge? Hey, I have a predisposition to be an alcoholic. I know this now. Grandpa was great. Grandpa was my dad was my Mm -hmm. brothers are. Okay, great. What are you going to do with that information? You know, and if you go back to this weight loss thing, people aren't doing anything with the information. I mean, the numbers aren't justifying that they're, they're doing anything different. Where's your hope and op- uh, inspiration come from that, that people can actually take this information and actually do something constructive? 
I think it's like anything else, saying something enough times to where it becomes part of mainstream conversation, mm. eventually it might come into somebody, you know? And again, that's the optimist saying, if yeah. you get one, And you can't save them than, all. Yep. Right. It's yeah. more than... And then that trickle down effect, that one person, how many people are in the sphere of their life that you can help at the same time. So I think it's just talking about it openly, reducing the stigma, t looking at biomarkers removes the stigma, you know, or the morality removes all that. We're having now an open conversation about your, you know, what, what, when you go to the doctor every year, here's your CBC, here's your red blood cells, your white blood cells. That's an open conversation. Right. So that's the point we have to get to. It's an open conversation. You can still pass or play, but yeah. as we continue to do that, I think it makes it more likely that someone says, I don't have to hide this anymore. And, right. and, and it's not my fault. It. It's not my right. fault. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, you know? So, and then the, the, that's the prevention side of things. And then the treatment side of things is how many times do you hear of people? They've been into rehab. They've been to treatment X right. amount of times, right? At nauseam. But no one's ever addressed the physiology, you know, for an individual. We are at the time where science exists to allow everything to be precision and individual. So we need to use it. It's just useless information if we say, hey, guess what we figured out, but it's not for you. Where does things like, <clears throat> this will be a little bit of a um, step away from this conversation we're having, but I think it intertwines. Things like meaning and purpose, you know, that's mm -hmm. something that you can't get a biomarker for right. as far as I know, right. but right. that is an innate driver in our well-being. Um, and it could, it could keep you from doing things like drug. my meaning and purpose. is pretty clear now it wasn't before set thigh. Um, but that meaning and purpose is what keeps me from going back into the abyss. Right. So it's not a pill. It's not an exercise routine. It's not you know, exercise or diet. Maybe it's exercise my mind, maybe. Um, so that is a missing piece of humanity today, especially Gen Z. That's totally. my passion is Gen Z. And um, totally. it's huge. It's massive. Gen Z just is this, it's a third of the world's population. It's the largest generation ever. They're the right. most depressed, most anxious. Um, they have the most abundance than any generation has ever had. Yet, coincidentally, they're, they're the most disconnected. So, right. you know, going back and looking at all this and trying to figure out why are we so um, lost? Well, why, why, why? I mean, there is so much to be happy for. There's so much bright future ahead of us. I mean, so many things are so much better than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Now, granted, a lot of things are worse, but where does hope and purpose, where does, you know, inspiration and hope and, and meaning and purpose come in with addiction? Because it's not something you can really identify and bottle and put in a, you know, and, and it's not tangible. Right. So I talk about the four pillars of health in generality. We have our physical health. We have our emotional health. We have our intellectual health. We have our spiritual health. And we have to have a balance of all four yeah. of those to truly have health. And we're missing those elements. Yeah, I agree. We really are. You know, we have so much, yet we have so little. Everything right. is about is about abundance of stuff. Yeah. Rather than, and we want, we think happiness comes from taking something from the outside, bring yeah. it to the inside, when it actually happens just the opposite. I agree. It's internally driven. <laughs> this is where the happiness comes from to the outside. So if we've made our whole life about stuff, and you know, you could just bring social media into this part of the conversation, when your life is based on comparison, 
to someone else's, you will never be happy. Yeah. Never. And 24 hours a day, people are bombarded with my life is better than yours. Here, look. Yeah. And then you take kids who don't really have the emotional strength, the intellectual strength to say, this is all a bunch of garbage. My life is this and I'm going to make it my best life. We've removed that from it. It's like you want to be everybody else. Everybody else is already taken. Great idea. Why don't you be yourself and make it the best you? I like that. We're not teaching those principles anymore. Well, how can we? Because you're not going to get kids to get off TikTok. You're not going to get kids right. to. You're just not. Right. No. I mean, it's, right. once they have a phone and you're not around them all the time, there's nothing you can really do. Um, yeah. So, that, I mean, those are areas I keep getting very perplexed and very frustrated. And, and how can I develop initiatives to give kids a sense of meaning and purpose in combination in addition to, you know, not going down those roads of addiction and substance abuse, you know? And again, I just keep going back to my personal story and that is where my evidence is. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have, I don't have studies like, like you do. I have my, my evidence is my family. Right. And, um, you know, I saw, I saw two times where it didn't have to end this way. Um, and then I think of all the families, eight, and listen to this, you know, this number too, 825 Americans a day die from overdose, suicide, and alcohol. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Really? That's the best we have as as a society to offer is 825. I mean, and, and, and probably five years ago, that was probably 525, you know? Um, so it's going to be a thousand shortly, you know, probably by next, by this summer, it'll be a thousand a day Americans. And again, as I talk about in my presentations, that those are death statistics. How about the families that yeah. death hasn't come in yet? Exactly. Those, are, those are in the millions. Your family could still be destroyed. We had lots of problems before Seth and Prudence died in our family because mm-hmm. of, of um, the addiction and substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like to say I'm optimistic. I really, I really believe I am, but man, I keep looking at the statistics and I just, I get more frustrated, you know? Well, go back to those rising statistics and one, we're doing nothing different. And two, right. Started the conversation with communication and connection. We are so disconnected, regardless of more technology than we've ever had to work with. Right. We're so disconnected. That's a recipe for addiction. Yeah. So how, how do we get how do we get reconnected then? Is it is it just a, some something as simple as nature? Oh, nature is huge. I, I I am such a proponent of nature. I mean, I bring that out all the time. I'm like, find your place of where you get back to where you feel like you're you and you can let the rest of the world go, regardless of what happened that day. For right. me, it's nature. I have to be in nature every single day or else I'm like a, a pent up animal. But that finding that, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, the hike, the Camino or the Compostela de Santiago goes from Southern France through mm-hmm. the Pyrenees mountains across Spain. It was a movie made of it called the Camino. Um, incredible hike, but it's got over a thousand year rich spiritual history. And, right. and I, I did that hike. And first it took me, it's over 800 kilometers. So 534 oh, wow. miles, 32 wow. days to do it. And I did it by myself. And when all you do every day is eat, walk, and sleep, eventually you start dealing with all the stuff that you put to the back of your head. Like, I'll get to that to another time because it doesn't feel good. Right. And you start dealing with those things. Jeff, the clarity that I had at the end of this, the peace 
that I, I did that 13 years ago now. Um, I did it to finish it on my 50th birthday to start the second half of my life. <clears throat> I'll be 63 next month. Awesome. 13 years ago. And <laughs> I never forgot how to tap into that piece. And it was the quiet. It was the silence. And I tell everybody, you have to sit in silence every day. And if you're afraid to sit in silence by yourself, there's a lot more work that we have to do. And, and if you think about the frenetic society that we live in, we're trying to keep people constantly needing something else, yeah. needing something else instead of with themselves. Yep. Because if you don't have those distractions, you have to look at and say, where am I and what am I doing? Wow. That's, um, that's pretty powerful. Um, I've never done a, a journey like that, but I would equate my scuba diving to being Beautiful. similar. Yeah. Yep. Because, you know, you can dive in the ocean and be with five people, but you really are alone because you can't talk, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so for me, that's been very cathartic and, you know, um, peaceful for me. Uh, my right. youngest son and I dive quite a bit, but, um, uh, do you meditate? I mean, where does meditation come into play for for you with this? I do. I do. I, do I meditate at night. I meditate in the morning sometimes. Well, and then when I'm whatever point of my day it is that I get to go out and walk, that's also meditation. Right. Right. So several times a day I'm doing that because I do not want to be the rest of the world. I do yeah. not want to get sucked into that. So that's what keeps me where I need to be. Are you on much social media? Um, as a company, we are, I'm not the person that does that one, because I wouldn't be good at it. And two, I don't want to know what everybody thinks 24 seven. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm battling that right now because I was never on Facebook at all until my nonprofit, the living undeterred. Mm -hmm. And then one of our board members said, well, you got to get a Facebook and all. So I did that. And, right. um, LinkedIn, I, I like LinkedIn. It seems to be, you know, highly productive. Um, mm -hmm. I do run the risk of comparing and which is something I need to self-regulate a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, but Twitter is the one where I'm really just about ready to unplug it. Um, yeah. I just, it's great when you're sitting there in the lobby and you've got half an hour before the dentist can see you or whatever. And you, and there's no magazines you want to read and you're just kind of fidgeting. You're going, Hmm, you can f fly through Twitter, but it just instantaneously, you just get into so much toxic stuff right. you know so much right. anger and things that people say and i don't even know if they're things anymore they're probably robots a lot of the bots are taking over getting people Causing all worked problems. up right exactly. i just didn't know i didn't know if you self-regulate your social media like that sounds like you do which is probably a good move yeah, i do i do and and you know it's the second time i kind of brought this up but comparison is the thief of joy yeah. and that's all that goes on in social media i i do linkedin because it does professionally for, for me, it gets to the right people. Um, but I really don't want to be that intimate in anybody's life that has anger to the yeah. point of what we see on social media. I do not want you in my life. Right. And that's a great point when you talk to kids because, um, uh, the other day there's a, uh, area substance abuse councils, uh, kind of a, a treatment facility here for people battling substance abuse. And my son, Seth was there for a while getting treatment. And then I'm, I'm a current board member, but just the other day they incorporated what's called the Seth room and it's named after Seth. 
Wow. And the, the SCTH is an acronym, which I can't off the top of my head remember it. But one exercise we did with the kids there, I got to speak to like, it was like eight kids there and they're all like 15, 16 years old. And I said, just take a piece of paper out and write down your five, the names, of your five closest friends. Don't show anybody. And they wrote That's them all down. And you know yeah. where I'm going with this. And I said, yeah. I said, okay, well, actually what I did is I said, take a circle and then make five circles and write the names of five. And then in the middle, put you, I said, that's what you are. You are your five closest friends. And you could see all of them like really quickly say, well, shit, this kid's a loser. This kid's a loser. This kid's a loser. And you know, that's a great exercise because even as parents were guilty saying, oh, my son hangs around the wrong crowd. Maybe your son is the wrong crowd. Yeah. Yeah. I took account. I, I immediately took accountability with Seth. I said, Seth, be the role model. Be right. the one that walks out of those. Don't, don't be like all your friends because every parent's blaming you and you're blaming them walk away. And, you know, he just couldn't do it. And he just, the pull was so strong and um, you don't know this, but before he died, he was in prison. He was incarcerated for a while and got an early, early release. And um, you know, I, the day we got the notification from the lawyer, I told my wife, I said, this is the worst news we could have got, you know, cause he was in a good place at prison. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it, it wasn't long, a couple of weeks. He was, he was right back in the same friend group he was in and then met a girl that was into heroin. And we think that that's where his introduction to heroin came. And unfortunately for him, the batch that he had that night was all fentanyl. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So let me talk about on the, on the frontier, what's out there, the alternative uh, spaces for mental health, addiction, substance use, what are some things out there that you see the two to come to mind in my head are like brainwave technology, mm-hmm. um, either MERT technology, TMS. There's a number of different ways that, you know, the belief structure is that maybe by calibrating the brainwaves or by studying them, you could see if someone's predisposed. Some of these companies claim that they can predict in, in kids, whether they will be alcoholics and stuff. I don't know if that's just, you know, woohoo science or what. And then the other one that's a tidal wave that, people better embrace. And that's psychedelic research. Um, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. coming. It's not going to get stopped. It's completely different than cannabis. Right. Um, there is a lot of evidence that it's helped on things like, you know, Alzheimer's, um, sleep disorders, autism, dementia. Um, so I just, those are two things that I wanted to ask you about that, you know, what's your just maybe personal thoughts. And then maybe from a clinician standpoint, where do you see um, ways to extrapolate good data from those two areas to help mental health? So example of the TMS, um, read a lot of good data, sent patients for it. I didn't see the results I wanted to see, but doesn't mean that's crossable. That was my experience. Um, Functional MRIs, okay, you can show me something, but then what are we going to do? Right. You're at the end of it, you're telling me lifestyle choices and that's that's not enough because we can tell somebody that um, psychedelics. I think that is going to be a big part of the future. I only have studied this much of it, so I can't speak from the science of it. But I think that is going to have a big um, wave right. that comes about. I think there's danger in the way we're doing <laughs> it now. Example: ketamine. We see Instagrams for Joe Blow's ketamine shop. Come on All in. Over. All over. That's dangerous stuff. I agree. Because I the agree. way to do ketamine is you, you're working with your therapist prior for a while. 
You then have the ketamine treatments. Your therapist is there with you right. talking through your ketamine treatment. Your therapist is there after the fact with your ketamine. Right. This is, come on in. We got a BOGO. Bring your buddy. Yep. That's dangerous stuff. And that's 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 unfortunately happening all over the country. All over because um, you're hustling a buck. You know, yep. it's dangerous. It's dangerous. So... I think there are frontiers out there to be explored. I think we're just beginning to crack open what's available. Um, but at the end of it, you still have to f- see what works for you. So if I, if I identify a biological component um, to my mental health and, and maybe just, I'm not that smart on this stuff. So give me an example. What would a biological component be? Okay, example, there's a, a gene that we look at in our panel that tells us if an SSRI medication is going to be effective or not. Okay. So is it fairly have, good, accurate? Is it accurate? Pretty yeah, accurate? yeah, because you, you're, you're looking at the, the SNP, here's the DNA. There's, if one of it's affected, it's heterozygous. If both of the alleles are affected, it's homozygous. You've got this homozygous of this particular gene. You're not going to have the effectiveness that you get from this SSRI drug. There's so many SSRI drugs. It's plugged away constantly, radio, TV, print, yeah. every every direction you're being hit with. Here, take this, take that. Um, but it was never going to be effective on you anyway. Hmm. So we see somebody, they come in, we run a panel. First off, your serotonin is in the tank. You've been on an SSRI for the past 15 years. It was never designed to be used that long. It was designed for acute situations. Sure. And now you're using it for 15 years and you have no serotonin because you've got this gene that nobody looked at. It was never going to work for you. So twofold, you've not getting the result you need. What happens to that person emotionally when for 15 years you've been told it's you? These things work. It's you. You want to be this way. It, it just compounds what's going on with that individual. It, it's so complicated. I mean, it's just... It really is. I mean, and that's, that's um, probably why the frustration is, is that what you're saying is correct, but then you just throw in childhood trauma or throw in a, a, a spouse abuse. Maybe your husband beat you or something else throw in some other variable that isn't a biological component. Um, and it's just, it's complicated. And for someone like me who doesn't have the clinical background, you know, I'm trying to be a sponge. I'm trying to learn as much about the stuff as I possibly can. So I can become a better advocate, you know? Um, and if one person that's always been my, my goal. And I always yeah. say when I, when I speak at a, when I speak somewhere, I always say this and I think I stole it from another speaker. I, you know, say there's 50 people and I say, you know, my goal is to help one person, yeah. but if not one of you here get helped, I'll be that one person. There you go. You know, I'm always going to get the benefit of speaking. Yep. Yep. So, my default option is I can never have a presentation that one person doesn't get helped because I always get helped. There you go. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah it's true. It's yeah, true. It really is. Um, where does codependency come into play? I think of that a lot. I've, I've got some people tell me that's the number one addiction on the planet is codependency. So interesting because um, a very well-known clinician in the area of sex addiction, Dr. Robert Weiss. Um, I, I know his probably- name, yeah. Yeah, probably the, the best known guy with the biggest following. He just wrote a book about um, pro-dependence. So kind of saying codependence was used one time, taken out of context. Everybody ran with it. 
And now you start labeling the person that's trying to help and actually be the support to where they're now owning. There's something wrong with me. I'm sicker than the, I'm sicker oh. than the addict, you know, and all that yeah. stuff. And it's, again, it's back to the labels. Like we used right. about ADHD, ADHD. Here's your yeah. label because you're married to, or you're friends of, or you're a sibling of, here's your label. So we can tell you how messed up you are and you need to get on XYZ meds yourself. Is, is that it? Is that the reason why we have labels is for insurance? I mean, if, if, if insurance wasn't even on the table, would we call things disorders? No. No, I know. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so common sense. It's like, you know, that, that's why I get, you know, this, this, this tears my heart out. The other day I was at a high school and they had a youth panel, a kid sitting up there, 18, 19. They had a 13 year old up there. Okay. Mm. His name is Landon. He's awesome. I got a picture of him. I put him on my social media. I, I love kids like that that can lean into mental health, mm-hmm. but he's up there at 13 telling the audience and everyone on the panel that he has attention deficit disorder. At 13, and my blood's just boiling. I'm, I'm sitting there in the audience going, oh, my God, I can't believe. And, I, and power to the kid doesn't know any better. He's just doing what some adult told him or some doctor told him he had. He, he doesn't right. know any better. He right. doesn't know what it is. But the fact is that he sat there just saying that, like he was at an AA meeting admitting his problems. And I'm like, I'm like, want to hug him. I said, dude, you don't, it's not a disorder, man. I have it too, and it's beautiful. Yeah. And someone needs to tell you that. And you need, and, and I'm not telling you not to take anything because I don't know if he's taking anything, but if, if you do take something fine, but let's make it like the fifth option, right? Not right. option one. Like we do today. There's a reason why our country's out of Adderall. Not option disgusting. one. Exactly. Not option one. And how much of it is our lifestyle today? You can call it nature deficit disorder because oh, back there you, go. Day, I like that. you have to go out and play. You know, and you I got like rid that. of all that energy. If you sat, I'm write that with, down. I'm gonna steal that from you. <laughs> yeah. If you sat there doing a game all day, and all you did was look at a screen all day, you'd be losing your mind. And that's how I kids. Love that. NDD. Yeah, I mean, back in the post, day. I'm gonna make a post and tag you, and, and <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give you credit for that. I absolutely freaking love that nature yeah. deficit disorder. I mean, we back wanna, in you want to give disorders and everything. Let's make your fact you don't go out and get sunlight and play with, you know, in the creek or the creek, whatever you call it, depending right. on what side of the country right. you live in. That's a disorder. Absolutely. You know, the, the one class that every kid loved was recess, right? So it. like you, you, got to, you got to go out and be a kid. Or even as me as an adult, I said earlier, I'm like, if I don't get out and walk every day, I'm going to be like a pent up animal. Will that show as... ADD? Will I show as a disorder because I can't do my work that evening? Maybe because I never got to go and relax in nature. Let me tell you something that's going to probably make your blood boil, but I, you know, I have an app coming out this summer called Brighton. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but I'd be honored to show you. Love to get wired for addiction to help to collaborate with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, so uh, I was thinking about something I just forgot now. Um, Make my blood boil. Yeah, I can't remember. We'll just move on. <laughs> this is every day for me. I tell my boys, I said, wait till I get Alzheimer's. I'm going to be a real train wreck. I'm bad now. It'll um, come back. It'll come yeah, back. but you know, it's it's just, um, it's. I think for us, it's just trying to find ways for people to have that arrow and they're putting, you know, the quiver, putting arrows in the quiver of different right. coping mechanisms. There is no one right way. You know, there's right. different pathways to recovery. Um, yeah. I personally quit cold Turkey. That's my pathway talking yeah. about it is my pathway. Other people have to go to meetings and they can't talk about it. They can't drive mm-hmm. by a bar. Mm-hmm. 
that's their pathway. You know, um, I think as a, as an advocate, um, it's important to arm people with as many different options as possible and not try to pigeonhole them and say the only way is AA or the only way is Adderall or the only way is a belief in God, you know, whatever your thing is that you believe, um, if that was true, then a would, this would be easy. We all be not addicted humans, just living in a utopia. Right. Um, and, and that's just not, that's just not possible. I just, that's, this is what makes us human. Exactly. All these the deficiencies yeah. is what yeah. separates us from the, from the computers. Exactly. And, and seeing what's out there and trying it on, like you're a little kid trying to figure out what sport you want to play. You try right. them all, right? Oh, I'm not right. good at that. Forget it. That wasn't fun. Oh, I'm really good at this. Right. And then that kid runs with it. So it's the same thing. Like, where do you feel yourself connect? What works for you? And go and run with it. Hmm. So where's the next evolution for you guys? What, what are you guys working on that's exciting that you can share or, or um, any initiatives or projects? So we're still, you know, the, getting the panel out there where um, there was just a study that came out last week in Nature uh, Peer Review Journal about the NIH saying the genetic SNPs, all the stuff that we look at, and it's linked to addictions and all that kind of good stuff. So more and more people are hearing about it. We're being asked to speak everywhere. And, and that's all good because, as I said earlier, you know, how do you do it? You do it one person at a time. You just have to keep on talking about it until people start saying, wow, you know what? This makes sense. This makes sense. I'm going to do this. So we're, we're constantly on the go. And this is probably more of a personal question. Um, and you can answer it however you feel, but I was just curious on your thoughts on, on harm reduction. Let's say, um, I know in Iowa we're we're we are so outdated here. We don't even have fentanyl test strips legal yet. Um, you know, when I was on the tour going around the country, there were some States that really lean into harm reduction. Right. Um, and like anything, if you want to find material that confirms your belief, you'll find it. If you want to find stuff that says it's mm-hmm. a joke, you'll find it. What, mm-hmm. what's your overall thoughts? And do you think that's, um, I don't know, I guess I'm curious on what your thoughts are on, on the whole idea of, um, meeting them where they're at and, and keeping them alive basically. I think that has to be a starting point. You know, if you meet somebody where they're at and they can't formulate a sound idea, anything you say is not going to make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you, so you're just, you're swimming upstream. So you have to, okay, where do you hear me? What are you hearing? And you have to talk to that individual differently. I mean, you know, how <laughs> tone is a part of communication. I could say, Hey Jeff, or I could say, Hey Jeff, those are two different meanings, you know? So it's, it's, it's having right. some compassion in meeting people of where they're at and what do you need right now? And let's get you what you need right now to get you to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. Now you start thinking logically. Okay, let's let's get here. Let's get there. It's meeting somebody where they're at. Absolutely. Yeah, nobody nobody that's died ever made it through recovery. Yeah. Pretty yeah. clear. I mean, yeah. I, I, and I'm, again, I, I was a novice going into this. Um, I, I've been able to spend time with people like Ryan Hampton and some really good people out there that are, that are, um, you know, I would consider them really good advocates and not activists. Um, mm-hmm. and so I've learned the terminology in a little bit. And, and, um, I keep, I keep thinking about Seth. It's like in his hotel room, he was by himself. So Narcan, things like that wouldn't have mattered. Uh, but I always wonder if he would have had the ability to test that fentanyl or that heroin that day, you know? Right. Right. And there's people that say it still wouldn't have mattered. Um, they would have taken the chance, you know, mm-hmm. and that someone who's that in the grips of that much addiction, 
they're not going to test it because one, they don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. How many people come out of being revived by Narcan and said, why'd you do that? Right. You know, that's, those are the, those are the depths of despair that I think most of us can't relate to. Right. 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 Yeah. So you remain optimistic. Um, I like that. (laughs) I like that. Um, There's enough pessimism around that we don't need to be sharing that. Yeah. Um, What are the best ways people can reach you, learn more about Wired for Addiction, uh, find out more about you and your mission? Sure. So our website is Wired for Addiction, all spelled out wired for addiction.com go on there take a look um we we treat individuals coming to us directly we work with therapists psychologists psychiatrists clinic well clinicians treatment centers we're even the criminal justice system we work with people in prisons um so there's a lot go on the website take a look um ask any questions that you have. We want to be a resource. We want people to know that this available, this resource is available. Are you a nonprofit? We are not. Okay. We are not. Yeah. We're, I mean, trying, to, we're trying to get a nonprofit arm of what we do because yeah. we do speaking for, for no fee. Oh, there's so much that we do that's nonprofit. No, I listen, you're <laughs> preaching to the choir. Yeah. yeah I, most, most of my yeah. projects have been on the nonprofit side, but then our yeah. app, um, and is my for-profit venture. Um, and I think, you know, I, I go back and I think about where can I be more valuable to society? And that's nonprofits are great. Um, but it takes so much longer to get things done and the money's harder to find. And if I can do a for-profit, my creativity kicks over. I don't have to pass everything over a board initially. You know, I can, it's my own money. If it doesn't do well, I, I lose, not donors. Um, and so, yeah, I, I felt an attraction to the for-profit. So I do, I have both. So Brighton, our app is a, is a for-profit venture. And mm-hmm. then the Living Undeterred Project is my nonprofit. But uh, at some point, I'd, I'd love to share. Um, I shared it with Jackie, and she was really excited about it. She did tell me about it. I'd love to see it. Yeah, because I yeah, think I just, that's cool I think, I think with the way it's structured is that it, – it, Anybody that has um, a product, I hate to say it, or a service or anything that isn't, <laughs> excuse me, involved with mental health overall uh, would fit into this type of a, of a program. Um, Beautiful. We need more Beautiful. collaboration. We need more yep. work, working together, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. well, any last things you want to add? And um, this is about a fast, almost an hour. I really appreciate your time. No, absolutely. This has been great. Thank you for sharing your story with me and, and being so open to what's gone on in your life. Now, just, you know, go to the website, take a look, Wired for Addiction, ask us any questions you have. If you feel like you need to be pointed in a direction, should I do this? Should I do that? You know, we're, we're there to help. I like to end my show sometimes asking this question. What's the one thing you'd say to somebody that's watching this, that's at the bottom of the abyss right now, and they're just having a very difficult time, you know? Um, you have to have hope. And today you've heard something brand new. Mm. You've heard that there's an actual measurable step. We isolate, we identify, and we measure. That's the first step right. to here's actually a systemic, systematic protocol to making a change. That's going to be the first time that you've ever heard that. How so young can on. you go? Yeah. Sorry? How young can you go with your... Youngest we've had is two. Oldest oh, we've wow. had okay, is cool. eight. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah. thinking about our app is 15 to 26. So that fits really well with You're right in the middle there. Yep. I'm just thinking to myself, man, if we had a continuum of steps for kids and they could get tested or whatever you call it, um, yep. get yep. the biomarkers marked or whatever that gives them, you know, more ammunition, more knowledge. It's up to them to do something with this knowledge. Yep. Um, and then yep. they can do the meditation. They can do the gym. They could learn about a healthy relationship with money because that's the number one stressor for older Gen Z is, is money. Right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's where there's a symbiotic relationship between almost Definitely. all of us is, um, it's a continuum, you know, you, you're not going to walk into their life and whatever you do, isn't going to just all of a sudden fix their problems. Right. Um, nor am I, uh, right. nor is anybody. It's, it's all of us putting together that planning concept where we're really looking at mental health now, almost like you did a financial plan back in the day. Exactly. Exactly right. And that's that's the part that now where I started the conversation, I said that there is an inequity in how we look at people in the mental health addiction space. There shouldn't be. It mm. should be open dialogue like what you do and say there's steps. You know, you don't just if you don't know how to use money, you don't wind up a millionaire because right. you don't know what the value of money is. Good point. Right. So if you don't understand what your physiology is made up of and you're showing all these signs and symptoms, now you can understand. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, listen, really enjoyed meeting you and um, I'm sure we'll do some more collaboration down the road. Um, I have a radio show here. I'd love to have you on as a guest. Um, sure. Call in and we can continue this conversation. Um, and I'd like to end every show with saying, Keep living undeterred. I know you will. Um, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. 